welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. The U.S. and Russia accuse each other of fomenting war. This as Russia's President Putin is in China for the start of the Winter Olympics, which is hosted by China. And before the start of the Winter Olympics, presidents of the largest nations in the world, China and Russia, issued a joint statement chiding the United States on its stance towards Russia. The statement, an expression of the growing relationship between these two world powers, also an update on the latest on the Ukraine. It's Black History Month, and it seems that attacks on Black history and people are at the highest level it has been for a while, from questionable decisions, re-police shootings of Black people, to attacks on voting rights, to outright banning of books or even discussion of racism, homophobia, and more in schools and libraries, to racist attacks on President Biden's announcement that he will pick a black woman to fill the vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court, to what seems to be a new surveillance state. And who do our panelists want to name as a black historic figure? Who would they like to lift up? Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn for this, our weekly roundtable. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Another young black man is dead after police entered an apartment where he was sleeping with a gun. The Minneapolis police released a short clip of body cam video showing the moment when officers confronted 22-year-old Amir Locke, who was wrapped in a blanket sleeping on a couch. Interim Minneapolis Chief Amelia Huffman said police were pursuing a homicide investigation, but that Locke was not named in any of the warrants. She said it isn't clear how or whether Locke was connected to their investigation. The chief said the video showed that the officer who shot Locke had to make an instant decision. You can see, along with an individual emerging from under the blanket, the barrel of a gun, which comes out from the blanket and becomes more fully exposed as you move frame by frame through the video. That's the moment when the officer had to make a split-second decision to assess the circumstances and determine whether he felt like there was an articulable threat. Nakima Levy-Armstrong, a civil rights attorney and prominent community activist whom the mayor appointed last year as co-chair on a community safety work group, said Locke's family told her that he was a licensed gun owner with a concealed carry permit and didn't live at the apartment. Levy-Armstrong interrupted the press conference by the police chief and mayor, calling the city's release of information the anatomy of a cover-up. I couldn't sleep at night. Tears from a mother's perspective, thinking about what happened. I saw the picture of Amir, he looks like a boy. My son is 17 years old. 
he has slept on his friends' couches for sleepovers. So we cannot sit here and whitewash this and pretend that it's okay. In a statement, family civil rights attorney Ben Crump compared Locke's shooting to the botched raid in which officers killed Breonna Taylor in her home in Louisville, Kentucky, two years ago. Crump said Locke's fatal shooting was another example of why we need to put an end to no-knock search warrants. So he said one day black Americans will be able to sleep safely in their beds at night. The Winter Olympics have kicked off in Beijing with an opening ceremony. Russian President Vladimir Putin was on hand. Earlier in the day, he held talks with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Julia Chapman reports. This was the first meeting between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping since the start of the pandemic, and the Kremlin described it as warm and constructive. In a joint statement, they condemned the use of sanctions and trade wars. They called on NATO to turn its back on Cold War approaches. Russia reiterated its opposition to Taiwan's independence, and China expressed support for the security demands that Russia has put to the West. Xi Jinping was quoted by Chinese media as saying that Russia and China's strategic cooperation is unshakable. Julia Chapman, Moscow. The U.S. has accused Russia of an elaborate plot to fabricate an attack by Ukrainian forces that Russia could use as a pretext to take military action. Russia's foreign minister dismissed the claim as absurd. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov recommended reporters not take anyone's word for it, especially the State Department's, when it comes to these issues. Meantime, French President Emmanuel Macron heads to Moscow on Monday. German Chancellor Olaf Schultz will travel to Moscow and Kiev the following week. The European leaders are adding to diplomatic efforts to defuse the crisis over Ukraine. U.S. employers stepped up hiring in January. They added 467,000 jobs despite a wave of Omicron infections that sickened millions of workers, kept many consumers at home, and left businesses from restaurants to manufacturers short-staffed. Amazon reported its profits nearly doubled in the final three months of last year. The report came as 6,100 Alabama warehouse workers begin receiving ballots for a second vote on whether to unionize. The first attempt ended in a defeat for the union drive. The National Labor Relations Board ordered the second vote, saying Amazon destroyed trust in the first vote by putting a mailbox at the employee entrance. The NLRB said that gave a false impression the company was conducting the mail-in vote. Meantime, the NLRB says Amazon workers have lined up enough support to vote on whether to unionize a New York City warehouse. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. It is our weekly roundtable, and I'd like to welcome our panelists. I'd like to welcome Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program. She works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. She's based in Mexico City, where she's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish-language publications. Laura is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura, 
Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Margaret. Pleasure to be here. And Jackie Goldberg, governing board member uh, for the Los Angeles School Board District 5. Jackie Goldberg is a former member of the California State Assembly. She had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council before being elected to the council. She served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie, welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Good to be here. All righty. Dr. Gerald Horn, Moore's Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books, uh, including recently published The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He's also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Dr. Gerald Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. All righty. So we are going to start off with uh, the Ukraine, with uh, China and Russia and all related uh, topics. So there's no doubt that the United States, Russia tensions and war mongering over whether the Ukraine should join NATO, uh, part of Russia's objections to NATO cozying up to Russia's border, have already strengthened the growing closeness between Russia and China. Russia and China share a border and represent the largest countries in the world. And China is seen as a growing economic threat to the United States, with predictions of it overtaking uh, the U.S. economy as a, a global leader in a few years. The Biden administration is working to regain U.S. leadership on political issues on the world stage, having lost ground during the Trump administration. But is it working and is it enough? The United States has accused Russia of planning to invade the Ukraine and also, interestingly enough, of using actors to stage a false incident showing Russia aggression and loss of lives, a story put forward by the U.S. State Department but roundly ridiculed uh, by Russia. For its part, the present government of Ukraine is concerned that the United States is doing too much warmongering and has said at least publicly that they don't believe that Russia is about to invade the Ukraine. Keep in mind that Russia annexed Crimea in 2014, and there has been an ongoing low-profile uh, war in that part of the Ukraine between pro- and anti-Russian forces, where at least 14,000 lives thus far have been lost. Russia and Ukraine share a long history. The Crimea was annexed into the Ukraine after the fall of the Soviet Union, something that Putin clearly is not happy about. Uh, President Putin and President Xi of China uh, met um, at right before the start of the Winter Olympics. Uh, the U.S. and other Western nations have a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics, they say to protest China's human rights violations against its ethnic minority populations. And now Russia and China are showing the U.S. and the world their closeness and friendship. They've issued a joint statement that in part reads, quote, the parties oppose the further expansion of NATO, call on the North Atlantic Alliance to abandon the 
idealized approaches of the Cold War, respect the sovereignty, security, and interests of other countries, the diversity of their civilizational and cultural historical patterns, and treat the peaceful development of other states objectively and fairly. Clearly, they're sending a strong message there. Lots of geopolitical issues at stake here. The U.S. is warning China not to back Russia's policies, read the Ukraine, but China and Russia, they have already signed major economic packages. And the fear is that if the U.S. slaps further sanctions on Russia, China will pick up the slack and blunt the impact of U.S. sanctions and clearly vice versa. Also at stake is China's claim that Taiwan is part of Chinese territory and whether or not the United States will send its military to a Taiwan if there is a China threat. On the Ukraine front, despite military buildups by Russia and the United States, there seems to be some diplomatic progress behind the scenes, including in the important area of Western missiles close to Russia's border. Let us go to a clip now from the Washington Post and then our panelists will weigh in on all this. The global security and economic risks posed by uh, further Russian aggression uh, would be enormous uh, and they would have consequences not only on Ukraine, Europe, the transatlantic community, uh, but on the PRC uh, as well. Uh, if Russia uh, thinks that it will be in a position to make up uh, some of those consequences, to mitigate uh, some of those consequences by a closer relationship uh, with the PRC, uh, that is uh, not the case. Uh, it will actually make the Russian economy in, win in many ways uh, more brittle. If you look at, for example, uh, where the major inputs to foundational technologies come from, they still come from the West. Uh, if you deny yourself uh, the ability to transact with the West, to import uh, with the West from Europe, uh, from the United States, uh, you are going to significantly degrade your productive capacity. Uh, we have an array of tools uh, that we can deploy. If we see foreign companies, including those in China, uh, doing their best to backfill U.S. export control actions, uh, to evade them, uh, to um, uh, get around them. Uh, I wouldn't want to speculate on uh, what those tools are, but we do have tools uh, that can address that and that would seek to account for that. That sounds threatening indeed. That's the U.S. State Department. Laura Carlson, let's start with you. Your thoughts on, on all of this. I mean, a lot happening on the world stage, uh, front and center, Russia, China, the United States, NATO. We've been talking about this gamesmanship that's been taking place here for some time now because it goes back and forth and up and down with a lot of provocations involved. Now we have this joint statement for NATO to halt expansion. Uh, we have the Mas Moscow statement that it supports Beijing's stance on Taiwan. The Taiwan issue is interesting here because we're seeing it in Latin America and in other parts of the world as kind of a litmus test at this point of U.S allegiance as we begin to see this new Cold War shaping up, largely uh, designed by the Biden administration, 
between the United States and China. I think it's really concerning that they're talking about fabricating attacks by Ukraine to use as a pretext that they're talking about false incidents with actors because it's almost setting the stage for some type of provocation, real or not, um, by forces that are really bucking for war in this situation. There was an article today on the use of sanctions uh, that actually in the New York Times it actually says the opposite of what the State Department clip just said in a sense um, by noting that Russia has, has done a great deal to reduce the impact of any possible sanctions in terms of reducing its use of dollars, its reserves of foreign currency, increasing those reserves trimming budget and reorienting trade and diversifying trade, a large part of that with China, also um, converting corporate debt to rubles. So it's not completely shielded, but there are limits on what sanctions can can do. And so the tough talk is just, again, in some ways a form of posturing. What's not posturing is the arms race that's taking place there now. This escalation has been a boon to the defense rate, to the defense industry. Uh, Turkey has now announced that it will be supplying armed drones to Ukraine, and this is an especially provocative measure because this ha- was done before it enraged Putin. It's known to be an offensive weapon, and it really ups the stakes in terms of both the danger and in terms of the responses of the two sides there in, at the same time as Biden is sending additional troops. So I still find it somewhat confounding because it seems like it really should not be that difficult to come back from the brink here. And Europe certainly has an important role to play, and yet it seems like it's being treated as a minor player, despite the fact that these developments are happening very close to its own borders. Macron is pressing for a summit for a diplomatic solution, and yet with all the noise coming from the two superpowers, it's hard to even hear that. Right. Thank you, uh, Laura Carlson. And, and Jackie Goldberg, it seems as though your prediction that this won't end up in an actual war uh, seems to be very much on the table, given uh, some openings uh, that seem to be happening on the diplomatic front. But uh, President Biden, I mean, a lot on his plate right now, The his uh, domestic agenda, Build Back Better, uh, being stalled, attacks now happening, uh, you know, uh, on his picks in the Supreme Court. But back to the international uh, front, the, uh, the killing of the ISIS leader, um, we are told, uh, uh, operation under the Biden administration, and the U.S. sending an additional 3,000 uh, troops uh, to the region, given the uh, tensions with the Ukraine. And you see the U.S. anti-war movement picking up. There are protests that are happening in several cities across the U.S., in Los Angeles, in uh, the Bay Area, etc., um, opposing any kind of war um, that the U.S. In, involves itself in. Jackie Goldberg, your thoughts on all this? Well, I think that actually Putin gets more by not invading than by invading. Uh, his use of threats about, well, we could cut off your energy to Germany and actually for a lot of uh, Europe, 
Uh, and his, he could use uh, cyber attacks. He could stay on the military. He could go dancing back and forth. I think in an interesting way, if he actually did actually go into Ukraine, it would then make Europe have to come together around NATO, and that's not something that Putin wants. Uh, he really likes the idea now, I think, that uh, Germany is kind of, uh, which is uh, supposedly our closest ally in Europe, and, and they, you know, they said we have a special relationship. Well, now they talk about a special relationship that was Moscow, uh, an important partner for them. And it's all about, of course, natural gas and, and gasoline and oil. So I think what we have is a situation in which Putin may do better uh, in getting some of the things he wants, which is to try to drive a wedge uh, between a lot of the European countries and the United States to make it look like it's United States that wants this war and uh, so forth. However, I have to say that by reminding myself that uh, Putin did manage to do Crimea at the end of the uh, Olympics in his country, in Sochi. So I do think that there is a chance that he wants to do it. But I think his success is going to be determined by whether or not Western societies can work together, can deal with the high energy prices, can deal with disinformation and political instability over a long period of time. But I'm not hopeful that they are, because they seem to be unprepared for the challenge. They seem to be kind of hiding from this. Oh, don't include us. On the other hand, uh, they know that if, in fact, Ukraine can be invaded by Russia, so could all of them. So I, uh, at least all on the Eastern Front. So I think, I think this is a complicated time, but I, I'm, I'm not, I still am not sure Putin really actually wants to go through with it because he seems to be gaining so much from the a threat of it. He's gotten a major statement from China saying, yes, we agree that, uh, you know, uh, this is a bad thing to be surrounded. Uh, and now uh, Belarus is talking about, well, maybe we could host nuclear weapons. I think all of this is really a part and parcel of Putin's attempt to redefine Russia after the Cold War uh, version of it and the Soviet Union of it ended. Right. Thank you, Jackie Goldberg. And, and Dr. Gerald Horn, I mean, even as all eyes are, are trained on the NATO and, and the EU, and we see, I saw at least one negative article on Olaf Schultz, um, who the new head of, of Germany, saying that he's a bit too mild um, when it comes to the crisis in the Ukraine. But the big story, it seems to me, in a lot of ways, is really what's happening between Russia and China. I mean, this issue that, uh, this statement that was issued before the start of the Winter Olympics, and China seems to be getting a lot from the hosting the Winter Olympics, actually, wasn't only chiding the United States um, and its stance towards Russia, but also what the United States is doing in the region uh, that China is in, in the Pacific region, including uh, that deal um, with the United States and Australia, um, Taiwan, very much on, on people's minds. And this friendship between 
the Russia and China that Bloomberg re refers to as frenemies, right? Um, <laughs> enemies with benefits, I suppose. But the enemy bit seems to be receding between the U.S. and China. And even last year, they had a record-breaking $146 billion in bilateral trade, right? So your thoughts on all this, uh, Dr. Horn? Well, with regard to your latter point, I think we may be witnessing a tectonic shift in the global correlation of forces, where the baton passes away from the North Atlantic bloc to this Beijing-Moscow alliance. In any case, in recent weeks, as you know, we've been talking about the arms issue, how when you expand NATO, countries like Ukraine and Montenegro and North Macedonia have to spend more on arms, which drives up the stock price of Lockheed and Raytheon. Uh, Raytheon, of course, was the former corporate home of Pentagon chief Lloyd Austin. It's about natural gas. The United States would like to have Texas natural gas producers scoop up markets in Western Europe from Gazprom. We all have mentioned the question of Cuba and how in October 1962, the United States was willing to blow up the world because Moscow had placed defensive missiles in Cuba which is analogous to what Russia is objecting to now. I think the latest is not only President Zelensky of Ukraine chiding the United States for its warmongering rhetoric, but there was an article in the Financial Times the other day that suggested that U.S. hedge funds are scooping up distressed Ukrainian assets because there is a fire sale going on because of all of this talk about war. So there's another profit-making angle. I think also that the U.S. press generally, uh, they have overemphasized the Soviet experience in explaining uh, Moscow's ties to the world. But I think they really need to look at the pre-1917, the pre-Russian Revolution uh, situation. If you look at your map, you'll see that Europe is dominated geographically and territorially by Russia. It has two times the population of the second most uh, populous state, speaking of the Federal Republic of Germany. And it's interesting to note that as France and UK were moving to loot the Americas and plunder Africa, Russia was moving east and setting up uh, its window on the Pacific at the expense of China, speaking of the city of Vladivostok in 1860. So what's interesting is that just as London financed Japan's attack on Russia in 1905, which was a turning point in world history leading directly to the Bolshevik Revolution. Then uh, a few decades later, the 1970s, you see the United States financing China, principally because of this fear and hostility uh, towards uh, Moscow. And I think that it's well past time to consider that instead of talking so much, as many in the U.S. do, about Mr. Putin suggesting that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a geopolitical catastrophe for the United States, excuse me, for the Soviet Union, we need to really consider whether or not the collapse of the Soviet Union and the entire Cold War was a catastrophic victory uh, for the United States. It was a victory for sure in terms of the Soviet Union collapsing, but it was catastrophic because in order to execute that victory, the United States had to build up China. And then when the Soviet Union collapsed, instead of Moscow sending subsidies to Moldova and Georgia and Turkestan, they husbanded those resources, as Laura Carlson just mentioned, the New York Times mentioned this morning, uh, building up foreign reserves. As Kathleen Stoner says in her new book, uh, Russian Resurrected, 
they have created this fortress Russia as an agricultural superpower. And yet, at the same time, its hostility to the United States is not diminished. And quite dangerously, at the same time, it has considerable influence in the U.S. right wing, as evidenced by the fact that Pat Buchanan and Tucker Carlson, amongst others, are hotly opposed to this U.S. escapade in Ukraine right now. So we are in a very dangerous and perilous moment, but I think we need more realism and more analysis on this side of the Atlantic as opposed to cheerleading for war. Right. Thank you for that, uh, Dr. Horn. And Laura Carlson, actually, uh, going back to you for, for a moment and stepping away uh, from the Ukraine, China, Russia, um, I'm hearing that polls, you know, the presidential race in Brazil, that polls a tightening um, between Lula and Bolsonaro. Uh, any thoughts on that? I mean, is there a possibility that that could be a tight election in Brazil? I mean, given uh, Bolsonaro's outrageous uh, behavior and also the, the police killings. I, I heard that uh, an article that every 28 minutes there's like a George Floyd happening uh, in Brazil uh, uh, against uh, the black population there. Laura Carlson. Well, it looks like any indication that the race was tightening up or that, that Bolsonaro was closing the gap, which has been close to 20 points, with former President Lula is probably just a blip. He's really become a pariah on the international scene, including with investors. And so even the capitalist international financial system is um, abandoning Bolsonaro in favor, uh, ironically, of um, the former president, Brazilian president, Lula da Silva, who's recognized to be uh, a leftist. So it looks like that a lot can happen between October 2nd, but that there will be a victory there and that even the system, as we know it, you know, has accepted that. The financial markets seem to be accepting it as inevitable that Lula will have a third term, and the military is also accepting it. Now, this comes into a lot of these geopolitical um, dynamics that we've been talking about in terms of, again, beginning to divide the world up in, in Cold War terms instead of recognizing the right of each nation to self-determination. And so there's a lot of talk about how, oh, no, if Lula wins in, uh, among the right, you know, if Lula wins in Brazil and, uh, and Colombia goes to the left, we'll have a Latin America on the left again. And amid all that talk, there's, there's still no recognition that these countries have every right to, to elect their own, their own governments. Um, so when we look at the race in Brazil or in any of the other countries, we really have to start applying criteria that don't just talk about left and right, but to talk about what are the crises that are happening in real people's lives in yeah. those countries and what are the real viable uh, means to come out of it. And certainly Bolsonaro would just be a factor that would deepen the current crises of violence that you mentioned, of poverty and of environmental destruction that Brazil's been seeing over the last years. 
Right. Yeah, we'll see how how that goes, not to mention the growing racist attacks uh, happening in Brazil as well. We are going to take a short station break now, but stay with us because our panelists will be right back. We're going to be talking about some domestic front issues, the banning of books and and a lot more, more on uh, black history and black historic figures. This is Black History Month. So stay with us. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. by Rhiannon Giddens from the album Freedom Highway and uh, North Star, significant here, um, as we mark Black History Month and we go into our uh, next segment. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, check us out um, on Facebook. Look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. Check out our website at SoTrueRadio.org and we are heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And in the United States, I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, and internationally. I would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in South Africa. It is our weekly roundtable, and our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. And we are now going to turn our attention to what is happening on the domestic front. It is Black History Month. As I said in the intro, it seems that attacks on Black history and people are at the highest level. It has been uh, for a while in our news headlines. You heard about the latest uh, police killing of a Black man who was asleep, by the way, um, with a a no-knock warrant. Uh, Also, um, a, a Black woman was sentenced to six years in prison over a voting error that wasn't even her fault. In contrast, uh, several white people who Republicans who were found actually to uh, you know be using dead people's registration etc to vote they've basically gotten a, a slap on the wrist there was a big flap when the Department of Justice was about to offer some kind of a deal to one of the killers of Armand Arbery that would have meant he would serve his time in federal prison but also as Barbara Arnwine who was on our show pointed out, it would have kept hidden all of the racist rants by the killers of Armand Aubrey. I mean, many of us had no idea because it wasn't really allowed as the case was going on. And then there are the attacks on President Biden's uh, saying he will appoint a black woman. Uh, Suddenly, you know, that is a big problem for Republicans. They didn't have a problem when a previous Republican president talked about wanting to nominate a woman 
woman president. And it seems as though Virginia is part of bringing in a surveillance state where, you know, neighbors could go tattle on uh, on each other. A lot of this having to do with the whole outrage of books being banned, of critical race theory being taught in the schools. Let us go to a clip now from CNN about the banning of books uh, to open up this whole discussion, um, all of this happening uh, during Black History Month. Let's go to that clip now. Remember when Republicans were running on protecting free speech? Good times. Turns out what they really meant was free speech for me, but not for thee. Because fueled by fear of critical race theory, conservatives are responding with speech codes of their own. Latest example is a brand new bill being pushed in New Hampshire, which seeks to expand prohibition on teacher advocacy of subversive doctrines. Now, if that sounds creepily McCarthyite, it's partly because it throws cold water on the teaching of communism, Marxism, and socialism. No word from neighboring state Senator Bernie Sanders on how he feels about that. But the bill goes even farther, targeting, quote, any doctrine or theory promoting a negative account or representation of the founding and history of the United States of America, including a ban on teaching that the United States was founded on racism. Now, someone should remind these folks that their state motto is live free or die. And just in case that needs some clarification, the dictionary definition of freedom is the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint, which of course is the opposite of what's being proposed. Look, you can be deeply patriotic and not pretend our country's perfect, but that common sense balance seems to be in short supply. Because this isn't an isolated incident. Take Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis is backing a bill that would prohibit public schools and private businesses from making people feel discomfort or guilt based on their race, sex, or national origin. Makes me wonder, whatever happened to the whole facts don't care about your feelings thing? I mean, this is literally trying to legislate around people's feelings. Should really be called the trigger warning for white guys bill. There are similar examples in Texas, where new laws restrict the way history and race are taught, while a Lone Star state legislator submitted a list of 850 suspect books to school superintendents, including works by William Styron, Margaret Atwood, and ta Coates, resulting in hundreds of books being removed from library shelves for review in districts like San Antonio. In Virginia, the new governor, Glenn Youngkin, followed through on campaign ads highlighting a conservative activist who complained about the Pulitzer Prize-winning Toni Morrison novel, Beloved, with an executive order demanding divisive concepts like CRT, setting up a Stasi-esque snitch line where parents can lodge complaints about teachers. The moral panic has been catching. According to a study by PEN America, in the first nine months of last year, 24 state legislatures introduced 54 bills intended to restrict teaching in public schools, colleges, and state agencies. At least 11 passed, and nearly half are still pending. Right. Well, uh, Jackie Goldberg, we're actually going to start with you on this. You're a school board member. Um, and indeed, school board members have been receiving threats around the country. I mean, this is Black History Month, I underscore history, and these attacks on on banning of books, but also this surveillance state um, of, you know, having a a hotline that parents could call in uh, if they hear uh, such things of, uh, you know, having to do with racism in the United States or homophobia or even anti-Semitism being taught. They could report that teacher, the teachers are being threatened with 
uh, fines. And the Wall Street Journal also has a major piece on how teachers are leaving the field in droves and they're going somewhere else, I suppose, where they're better pay and perhaps uh, more appreciated. Um, Jackie Goldberg, your thoughts on, on all this? Well, let's start with the last thing you just said about teachers leaving. You know, it has been true for uh, about five decades that teachers make about 20% less in income annually than any other college graduate, a college graduate required profession. So this book banning is not new. It's uh, inflamed now because of Trumpism and because of the notion that it's okay now to out loud say that we don't like people, we don't like people that aren't like us. It's okay to say that it's inappropriate to talk to children about sexual orientation or gender or gender differences or gender, uh, you know, uh, all of these things. It's it's, it's pornographic to do that. This is not new. In my first term on the board in 1983-45, Project 10 began at one high school, which was to provide a place at lunchtime for gay kids or kids thinking they might be gay to talk about that. The state legislature at the time in popular progressive California was slightly controlled by Republicans, and they voted to ban the entire financing of L.A. Unified School District. That is to cut off 100% of our state funding if we did not get rid of Project 10, because they found one book in the library that had a discussion of what it is to be having a homosexual sexual relationship. And on the basis of that, they literally passed legislation and signed into law that L.A. Unified would not receive any more funding this year, which they then backed down from when we sued them, and it all ended up fine. But the point of this is is this is not new. The right wing began with Mel and Norma Gabler in the 80s to say that in Texas, we have to have parents decide what is taught in the schools and what books are used. That led to the existence of two different types of textbooks about U.S. history that are currently in vogue. There's the Southern text, and then there's the Northern text. And the schools in the uh, so-called Northern uh, states use the Northern textbooks, and the Southern states and much of the Republican-held countries now are using the Republican text. The reason I say that is, is this book banning is a lot bigger than just taking out a few books, a few even a few hundred books out of your uh, out of your classroom. Texas's SB Senate Bill Three lists, and I read some of them last week, as you may recall, some of the things you can't even talk about. You can't ever use the writings of George Washington, of Adams. You can't use uh, Washington's speech at the end of his term, warning about the the attempt to make kings again in the United States and to, to not have democracy. You cannot to talk any longer about uh, whether or not the beginning of America had racist beginnings, when of course it obviously did. So these kinds of things have been in, in going on for a very long time. The big difference now, besides Trumpism, is the fact that the right-wing funders are funding these people to go to these meetings. You know, they show up and there are 11 of them. There are 11 of them. Well, 11 parents, I got news for you, even in a district of 5,000 students is 11 parents. But what's winning is the fact that this is all based on Trumpism and the notion that we're trying to take our children and make them hate America and white children to hate themselves. Of course, all of that is just garbage. So I think the fight back is going to come from the kids, 
believe it or not. Right now I'm beginning to hear from students uh, that are in contact with students that I have in my own student advisory group who are saying in other states that they're not going to take this stuff, that they believe they have the right to read everything they need to read to understand truly what's going on in this country and in the world. So I think you're going to first see the bad news, but then I think you're going to begin to see some good news because the kids are very unhappy. They believe that they should be able to read anything and everything and make their own views up. This is a different generation, and I think what's happening is, is that parents are being a little bit afraid of their own children because their own children are not necessarily going along with the fact that Trump uh, won the election. They're not necessarily going along with the idea that uh, Black Lives Matter is a bad idea, is a, is, a, is a dangerous idea. They're not going along with all of this. Uh, but before they can get themselves together and find some support, I hope, from uh, the adults, and teachers' unions are fighting back, but they're not winning, because a lot of the states where the worst stuff is happening have banned teachers' unions, so, of course, they never wanted to know what the teachers thought anyway. I do think it is dangerous, because it is so much bigger than the last two or three times that I've experienced ban book banning in schools. I think it's dangerous because it's connected to the larger political division in this country, and it is trying to make white parents believe that somehow or another their children are in danger if they know truly what the history and the current situation of America is. Right. Thank you. And Laura Carlson, your thoughts on, on all this, because it seems as though a lot of people are afraid of using the F word. No, I don't mean that one. I mean fascism or the move toward it. And, you know, you can't help but think of 1984, uh, George Orwell's 1984, when you look at uh, what is happening uh, with this whole uh, banning of books, but also of outright lies um, being put forward as the truth. I mean, the, the, the flip side of things that are going on right now. Uh, your thoughts, Laura Carlson? I think it's really important to put it into the historical context, as, as Jackie reminds us. Uh, but what is happening at this particular moment is very, very dangerous, and I think it has a very specific content as well. I'm not sure that culture wars is the right term. Culture wars implies that there's two sides in a battle over ideological versions. But we're really looking at a, a political battle over truth and the suppression of truth. And this is in historic memory. This is something that we've been thinking a lot about in other parts of the world, particularly in Latin America, as we find that very brave people such as the Mayan women who suffered under the genocide campaigns of the 80s, who were sexually enslaved and tortured by the military, are stepping up decades later to, to make their case and insisting that this isn't just the past that this past is what marks the future, that unless there is a social consensus regarding the horrors of what has taken place in the past, regarding the truth of what took take place in the past, then there will be no way to move forward. This is what historical memory is, and this is why it's become so important as an issue lately, and this is what the right is very well aware of. When you look at some of the lists that the clip spoke of in terms of what's being done, a list of 850 books to superintendents of schools in Texas sent out by the state Republican representative Matt, uh, Matt Krause 
that's a lot of work. That indicates that there is a very well-financed and very well-organized campaign about this. It's not just looking to take books off the shelf, but that's looking to to really to reframe the way that we understand our, our history. In, in Texas, they're asking to play down all references to slavery and anti-Mexican discrimination. You know, that doesn't mean that they didn't exist. It just means that children will learn them. It means that uh, the ability to confront and to deal with our history is severely limited. Oh, so, yes, 1984, authoritarian act, that's a huge part of what the threat is currently, and the other huge part of it is this fight over being able to tell the truth about the past and what that means for the present. Yes, thank you, Laura. And, you know, Dr. Gerald Horn, I mean, one worry is certainly that I have and, and a little bit scary uh, would be people not really grasping, the good people who are on the quote-unquote right side of history, not really grasping um, the severity, the danger of what's going on uh, right now. I mean, we see in Northern California, you know, California is supposed to be a bastion of, of liberalism, and we see that in Shasta County now. Um, that county is now going to be run by a group that are aligned with a local militia. You know, these racist, um, <laughs> you know, uh, militias in Shasta County, running Shasta County in uh, Northern uh, California. When it comes to the attack on history, you know that very well. Your work has been uh, somewhat under attack and, and W.E.B. Du Bois um, in, in uh, Black Reconstruction, I mean, he was very clear on, on this and how history should be told and, and, and really thinking that it should be like a scientific approach. But this whole business about uh, leaving things out of history because it's going to hurt the feelings of, of young white children is quite outrageous. Uh, but the, it, it also speaks to a point that you raise again and again is, do we really realize what time it is? I mean, getting back to that F word, and we have to remember in the lead up to what was happening in Europe, you had people in the Netherlands, for example, and other parts of Europe who just, well, it's not that bad. They just couldn't imagine that things could go in that direction, Dr. Horn. Well, first of all, with regard to your point concerning Shasta County, that is exceedingly important. We need to shine a flashlight on those troubling events because these are basically neo-fascist forces. They plan to go after the district attorney, the public health officer. Of course, mask and vaccine mandates was one of their winning issues. They plan to sack teachers as well. You were also uh, appropriate in mentioning W.E.B. Du Bois and his book, Black Reconstruction, because in a concluding chapter in that book, he speaks about the propaganda of history which is very relevant to what you have referenced concerning the attacks on critical race theory, the attacks on books concerning black history, because this has been a long-time, long-term trend in the United States of America. Black Reconstruction was published in the 1930s, and the research was done in the 1920s. I should also mention that a part of what's at issue concerning what we're discussing is an idealized version, a sanitized version of the history of the United States, which the right wing and some unsuspecting liberals would like to propagate. Uh, that is to say, to see what's happened in terms of of civil rights and voting rights is inevitable, that it's the ineluctable working out of a historical process. 
And then you have a number of figures today, including Nicole Hannah-Jones and her 1619 Project, the Haitian filmmaker Raoul Peck and his film Exterminate All the Brood, the film The Long Shadow by the filmmaker Fran Causey. They're painting a very different picture, warts and all, of the United States of America. Many find that unsettling, and that really is the nub of what is at issue today. Right. Thank you for that, Dr. Horn. And uh, we are now going to uh, give each of you an opportunity uh, just in the uh, last uh, few minutes that we have here to lift up. We have about six minutes, <laughs> right? So you can time it out. Black historic figures, a nod to Black History Week that you would like to mention and perhaps share a, a short piece on, on why you are lifting up that person. Laura, we'll start with you. I have to mention Harriet. Tubman. We learn about her, but kind of as a caricature, a two-dimensional figure, as all subversive, truly subversive historical heroes are presented. Um, and yet, we know what she did. She uh, escaped from slavery. She was born at Arminta Ross in Maryland. She escaped from slavery, and she went back at least 13 times to rescue people with through the Underground Railroad. There have been many times in the past as things look darker and darker when uh, we've had to consider whether we're going to need something like that again, an autonomous movement, a clandestine movement, to actually save people's lives in, in, uh, in very threatening times. The, what she did, though, depended much more on many sources of knowledge than people, realize, than people realize. She had to know about turf. She had to know about weather. She had to know about psychology, especially white psychology, to avoid getting, getting, getting found out. Uh, she had to know about astronomy and uh, how to navigate by the North Star. There was a whole body of knowledge that was involved yeah. there that was scientific knowledge and not recognized. The most important thing, I think, just to finish up very quickly, is that she was the only woman to lead an armed expedition, the raid at Combahee Ferry, and, of course, the Combahee River Collective Statement in 1977 recognized this in many ways. She was a suffragist, and she was the mother of intersectionality that has become such an important pillar of modern real feminism. All righty. Thank you for that. We literally have uh, Jackie Goldberg and, and Dr. Horn, two minutes. <laughs> so perhaps a minute each for you, Jackie Goldberg. Who are you lifting up? I'm lifting up Ida B. Wells Barnett, uh, born in slavery in, in the middle of the Civil War in 1862. She became, after the Civil War, her parents became activists around the Reconstruction politics. She enrolled in Rust College, was expelled because she started a dispute with the university president. And when she was very young, her parents and her infant brother died from yellow fever, and she had to raise her children while she changed, tried her fight. In 1884, she filed a lawsuit against the train car company because she had a first-class ticket and was removed. She won, but then, of course, the federal court overturned it. But she, really, the thing she's most known for is her expose of lynching. 
in the South. In 1892, she began to talk about lynching in her journalism articles because several of her friends were lynched, and she was doing so much about anti-lynching that they burned her newspaper, and she was threatened with her life, and so she moved to Chicago, where she became a very big part of getting rid of the boycotting the Columbia Exposition. She was important in starting women's rights organizations. She started the National Association of Colored Women Clubs. She started a kindergarten program in Chicago that became a big part of it. She was a person who had a great deal of influence in Chicago because she helped get the first black alderman elected, and very few people really ever talk about her. But because of her, particularly her stances and her writings about the lynching, she is uh, one of the people I want to rise up today. All righty, thank you. And uh, Dr. Gerald Horn. Well, Shirley Graham Du Bois, best known perhaps as the spouse of W.E.B. Du Bois, but probably the leading black woman intellectual of the 20th century. I recommend her novel, Zulu Heart. She was also an organizer when the NAACP had a, a, a growth and membership in the 1940s. She was at the controls. And I think that along with W.E.B. Du Bois, she illustrates the fact that we all have to wear many hats, not only as writers, but as organizers. And of course, her spouse, W.E.B. Du Bois, exemplified that. We spoke of his black reconstruction. We could have mentioned his founding of the Pan-African movement and the NAACP in 1909. All righty, on that note, we, we get really are going to have to dash. I'm lifting up, of course, Sojourner Truth, another fascinating roundtable. I'll thank all three of you. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank Jose Benavides, engineer today, and our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas, and of course, all of our panelists. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! Sojourner Truth will be back on the air on Tuesday. I hope you get to do something really nice this weekend, and you all please remember to stay safe. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Come round by my side and I'll sing you a song. I'll sing it so softly, it'll do no 